Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. Well, there have been a number of reports, Pim, that have come out recently about commercial real estate in the U.S. that I, that I have found really interesting. Uh, Goldman Sachs, for example, came out saying that CRE is probably overvalued with commercial real estate prices, 10 to 16 percent above fair value. Joining us now is Felice Morans. She is a Bloomberg News reporter covering equities and uh, as well as commercial real estate. Felice, thank you so much for being here. I found this really interesting. Uh, you sort of you, you looked at a roundup of analysts talking about being concerned about commercial real estate. Can you lay out what it is specifically that has them so concerned? Well, the big thing is uh, the trend towards higher interest rates. Uh, and that's followed by what's being labeled the Amazon effect, that Amazon is driving retail vacancies. So it's pretty easy to paint a narrative about why there might be some concern in commercial real estate. At the same time, uh, you know, there's always the other hand. And that other hand is that we're not actually seeing any losses at the moment. Okay, no losses at the moment. But as you said, weakening fundamentals and specifically this combination of uh, increased uh, debt costs as well as, you know, debt service burdens plus higher vacancies. Uh, according to uh, a noted Bernstein, this is something that's pretty easy to tell. Yes, indeed, that that kind of narrative is, e is easy to tell. And I think that people are always looking for the next thing to worry about. And as long as there are these so-called brown shoots as opposed to green shoots, which is how um, Baird had characterized the situation, people are going to be looking at that and, and trying to figure out what's going on. Well, you know, Felice, one thing that I find interesting is that a lot of investors around the world sort of flocked to U.S. commercial real estate as a bond substitute since you get steady income from renters, leasers, et cetera. Um, and that was sort of driving a lot of Chinese money, Asian money, as well as European money into the U.S. Has anyone talked about sort of a shift in foreign money and that kind of leading to some of the worries here, too? I think that... People are questioning whether there's going to be a shift. I haven't really seen any evidence that there is, in fact, a shift underway. One of the comments from U.S. Bancorp chief executive on the conference call recently, this goes back, I guess, to December, uh, said that uh, they haven't been growing their commercial real estate loan book because they see some competition for things that they would choose not to do. What kind of things do you believe they are? Well, I was wondering that myself, and other analysts have noted that there are some loosening standards, um, certainly at banks. Now, it's easier to track standards at banks because the Fed surveys that. Uh, you know, I, I would wonder what other things are happening in, in a less regulated or less monitored corner of the market. Well, and this is actually really important because if you have, you know, U.S. Bancorp, Wells Fargo, Goldman Sachs warning about com commercial real estate valuations, you have to wonder, perhaps they're seeing loosening standards and they're seeing something that perhaps haven't materialized yet, but that could kind of filter in more rapidly than, than people expect. Well, you did have Morgan Stanley pointing out that core commercial lending standards loosened 
in the first quarter for the first time since the third quarter of 2015. Uh, but at the same time, demand continued to decline. Uh, Richard Hill over at Morgan Stanley called that a peculiar relationship, since demand usually increases when you have le- loosening standards. Now, does this have to do, when you talk about commercial real estate, is this all about new build, or is this because you're seeing a shift in uh, what it is that the businesses want out of real estate? That's a great question, and it really is very, very broad. I think unlike the housing market, which is also complicated for reasons of its own. The commercial real estate market covers everything from apartments to warehouses. Um, you know, if you look at the Bloomberg Reed Index, you can see that that's down about 5% year to date, and that's probably correlated with rising interest rates. However, you can see that warehouses, which are known as industrials in uh, REIT parlance, are actually rising. So you do have a big variety there, construction loans, Um, It's a very kind of complicated and varied sector. I want to thank you very much for coming in and sharing this information with us. Uh, Felice Morantz of uh, Bloomberg News talking about uh, commercial real estate. And I guess it's also worth noting that commercial real estate, just like residential real estate, is a uh, geographical uh, indicator. We say Bam and Joe Mysack, editor for the Bloomberg Brief on Municipals, appears in our studio magically. Joe Mysack, um, you might be uh, sort of, if you're hunting for municipal bonds this summer, uh, are, you, are people going to come up short? Because I was reading a story about how Muni negative net supply hits nearly $19 billion. Oh, yeah. Well, see, the municipal market is... Um... It, municipalities are rewarded for their very conservative bond issuance tradition of selling mostly serial bonds, which mature every year. So you have maturing bonds being taken away all the time in the municipal market, and you have the 10-year call. So every 10 years, you have bonds being taken away. Total this year, I think it was over $400 billion were being taken away. <laughs> now, if if you consider that we're going to maybe have $300, $350 billion in issuance total for the year, well, you could see the problem. So basically, we're looking at municipal bond issuance that is down, and it seems down for the year, which, what, you're raising your eyebrows? It's, you know, it's down, yes, but But no. there's some, wait, refinances, right? Well, yes, but no. The thing that was done away with last <laughs> year was the twenty. Uh, about 20% of the market is advance refundings in any given year. And Congress took those away last year, or the Republicans did. And uh, so that's why we're seeing overall volume down this year. But in uh, I took a look at this uh, earlier this year, and I said, you know, what we are seeing is new money issuance. Municipalities out there selling bonds for projects is up. It's up 10% so far this year. So, you know, people lose sight of that fact. I mean, if you're an underwriter, you just want, you know, lots of volume and you're saying, oh, the volume is down by about 20%. You expected that. You expected that because the advantage of fundings were taken away. But with new money and and building things for projects, um, that's up. And 10% is robust growth. 
So municipalities haven't been sitting back and saying, well, better hold our fire now. No. Well, so given the fact that municipalities are borrowing money for their projects, can we just Take a moment to take a pulse of the cities and counties and states. I see you taking the moment. Breathe deep. Uh, just to take, take a sort of a, a pulse of the health of these, of these regions in terms of, you know, their taxes, their borrowings going up, their pensions getting more indebted. How are we doing right now? Well, you know, the the thing you mentioned, you talk about regions, and it even goes further than that because the municipal market as an investor pointed out to me years and years ago, it's particular and specific to a remarkable degree. Or you could even say an insane degree. Because when you look at these uh, states and municipalities, you really have to go on a one-by-one basis and say, what's going on here? For example, our Amanda Albright uh, had a story this week about how uh, Fort Worth, Texas, and Can you explain astounding. what's going on there? I, Fort Worth, uh, Texas. You would expect, right, that Fort Worth, booming. Texas would be booming. booming. So why do they have such a huge pension liability? Because Population up. Just, just to let people know, because oil prices are up so much, so they should be getting the revenues from that. It should be a great time. Carry on. It should be a great time. And the reason is because Fort Worth, believe it or not, was uh, they stinted on how much they uh, put in their uh, actuarial uh, contribution to the pension fund. So when you skip those payments or you trim those payments or you don't put in as much as you're supposed to, as, for example, New York always does, uh, you run into a problem. And I people can't believe it. Texas, Fort Worth, Texas, any Texas city, and yet... It's true. Lots Wait, the of point, Texas cities. Hold on a second. The point being here that now they have to pay the bill and they have to divert money away from other things to put into their pensions to make up for those payments and possibly even more because they could have been accruing interest. Is that what's going on here? That's what's going on. But also, after the financial crisis, okay, when, when a lot of uh, these big public pension funds and small public pension funds, for that matter, took a hit a lot of these places decided to to uh, go very conservative, very safe. So they missed out on the stock market run-up. You know, it, it, you, around the uh, turn of the century, 2000, most public pensions, believe it or not, were over 100% funded. So can you give us a sense of what other areas, just really quickly, also are suffering from a similar type of thing where they've been skipping payments and are going to face the reckoning at some point? Oh, it, you know, it's it, a lot of your uh, usual suspects. If you think about the state of Illinois, Chicago, state of Connecticut, Pennsylvania, Kentucky, uh, you know, it's not every place, but there are like, you know, as I say, the uh, uh, the outliers in the municipal market that are in some trouble. So. California, too, believe it or not. A lot of the uh, smaller municipalities there uh, short-cheated the bed. All right. Joe Mysack, thank you so much, as always, for joining us and to discuss short-cheating the bed. Joe Mysack is the editor for the Bloomberg Brief focused on the municipal bond market.
There's a lot of movement today, particularly in the European bond markets. And there's a big question on days like this, which is how much leveraged money is there at play? How many uh, traders are making bets that are short term versus investors making uh, big and longer term allocation shifts? Here to give us some kind of insight into some of these issues is Sylvia Jablonski. She's Managing Director of Capital Markets and Institutional ETF Strategist at Direction Investments, which specializes in leverage. ETFs. Uh, Sylvia, thank you so much for being with us. I'd love to get your sense of, you know, really whether you're seeing uh, increased flows in some of these leveraged products on days like today when you see the Italian uh, bond yield surging to uh, to three-year highs. Yes, thanks so much for having me. So uh, the, the, the quick answer is yes. Um, you know, any kind of market news or headline news tends to result in flows in our funds. So I'd say energy today was um, a good example of that. So month to date, you know, there's been a lot of fear about inflation. Uh, energy tends to be a late cycle performer. You had Iran, Venezuela sanctions, um, uncertainty around that. And, you know, a lot of investors started flocking to the, the energy bull fund. So basically, uh, anything oil and gas related. So we have an ETF called the Gush, um, which is three beta oil and gas, gas, three beta natural gas, and um, three beta energy. Saw so huge inflows and also performance. So month to date, you know, prior to today, they were up, you know, 40%, 20%, 20% respectively. But then today you saw the 2% pullback with the Saudi output boost. And, you know, we sort of see short in the short term traders looking to tactically take advantage of of the bear side. So it's really, you know, your short term view on the particular uh, trader sector and, you know, all market news factors into that. Well, I was just looking at ERX, uh, one of your uh, direction, uh, three times leverage uh, energy ETFs down uh, nine and a quarter percent today. But I thought it was interesting. The one word you mentioned was traders. Yes. Are, are these products typically used in conjunction with something else? By traders? Absolutely. So the three beta products are meant to be traded and not held. So they're tactical products that allow you to, you know, if you have a strong conviction, you usually have, you know, some factor that compels you to enhance your exposure to an index in the short term. You usually have a view that it's going to go up or down, and you usually have a view that there will be, you know, little volatility for the time period that you're holding a three beta ETF. And that could be a day, it could be a week or a month, but, you know, your conviction should be vol will be low and it will trend in the correct direction. You know, most of the clients that we see using these products are using them for alpha generation to take advantage of short-term market opportunities and for portable alpha. You know, this is sort of behind the construct of a long-term buy and hold portfolio. Okay, so are these hedge funds? They are uh, RIAs, family offices and hedge funds, institutional clients and also sophisticated retail traders. Are these people who don't want to register as a counterparty for a SAF or a clearinghouse for derivatives mm -hmm. and are using ETFs as a proxy for uh, just doing the derivative trades themselves directly? Yeah, you know, that's a that's a great point. You know, one of the things that we say is we're we are trying to democratize leverage here. So if you have an RIA, an individual with a strong conviction that would like to enhance his exposure to an index, yeah. you know, that person doesn't have an ISDA agreement with seven different counterparties on the street. They don't have swap agreements and whatnot. So it allows them to access that index. How do you make sure that people who aren't sophisticated stay out? I mean, especially given the fact that it has, I'm looking at Gush, for example, which has an expense ratio of nearly 1%. Yeah. And I'm wondering, you know, how do you make sure that, uh, you know, a, a marketer doesn't go to see a higher potential spread for themselves, a higher commission, and market 
market that to uh, to an individual? It's it's really all about education. So you know there are again sophisticated traders that are the appropriate crowd for these products. If you're trading it for two or three days, you probably don't care too much that the expense fee is 95 basis points because you're not paying a whole lot. But for the other crowd, the the classic long term asset allocators, you know we talk to them, we educate them about light leverage. So a 1.25 beta product, for example, which will, you know, lightly enhance their underlying exposure to an index. And, you know, in periods of net positive compounding, they'll get a little bit of enhancement, but not the level of, of drawdown and volatility that say an oil, gas or energy ETF would have in the short term. But Just, there are a lot of education, um, you know, efforts to, to make sure that the right people um, are using the 3X products. I just want to give you a chance to talk a little bit about UBOT, U-B-O-T, uh, because this is really about uh, what many people are interested in. This is artificial intelligence and robotics. Yes. Um, so I love this ETF, actually. I think it's uh, one of the most innovative ones we've come out with. It's three beta robotics, artificial intelligence, and automation. So it's basically the idea that you know a lot of these companies are looking at ideas, designs, and ways to automate manufacturing, um, medical fields, and you know even military. So they're looking to create robots that can replace, say, the aging Japanese population uh, in the future to, to staff factories in America and in China with sensors and you know non-human manned machines basically so so really robotics and in the medical field it's you know making invasive um, surgery more efficient with companies like intuitive surgical and i think for the average investor a lot of them haven't heard of kiants and fanuk and kasawa and you know intuitive surgical probably they have heard of but i think it's a it's a diverse basket of access to those different uh sectors thanks very much for being with us uh, sylvia jablonski is managing director capital markets uh, institutional etf strategist uh for direction Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.